Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. In a sense, listening, what we call it Pacific Integral Generative Listening. We call it generative listening because the very quality of your presence and your listening to the other, it gives them the experience of being safe, that, that the ground beneath them, as it were, will support them. Our guest today, Thomas McConkie, has been practicing meditation for 20 years. Studying developmental psychology for 10, is an author and also a friend. A few months ago, I decided to take a class, Mindfulness Plus, that promised to make meditation less of an abstract idea and more of a practice in my own life. You may be wondering why I'm talking about this on a podcast about UX research, but what I found in the class was the significant power this practice had on my ability to be, as our guest today puts it, a generative listener. As a community often trying to do generative research, this is an invaluable skill that I couldn't resist sharing. This episode is sponsored by UserZoom, a UX research tool that combines qualitative and quantitative tools with unparalleled customer support. Learn more at userzoom.com. And DScout, a remote research platform that is turning fieldwork on its head by allowing researchers to conduct experience sampling with real people right on their smartphones. Visit dscout.com to see how easy it is to start your own study. This is Ariel Tionflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Generative Listening, Creating Space for Connection. I'm so excited today to have Thomas McConkie on the show. I originally met Thomas through a mindfulness course that he conducts. A friend had taken it and recommended it to me. And so I actually wanted to invite Thomas because I felt like I learned some things that were really beneficial for my practice as a UX researcher. And I thought we could start today just with a little bit of a brief introduction, Thomas, of how you got into this. Cool. Thanks, Ariel. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah. As far as mindfulness goes, I remember being about 18 years old when I was a freshman in college, and I just showed up in my first dorm room and realized I had no life skills. Like, I had no idea how to manage <laughs> myself outside yeah. of my parents' house. And it, it's crazy because, you know, I grew up in Salt Lake City, not a place that was considered to be a mecca of meditation back in the 90s. I mean, it was pretty countercultural yeah, totally. to do meditation here. And yet, like, I just kind of gravitated towards it. Like, I had this intuition. Like, meditation could help me. It could help me calm down. It could help me with my anxiety. And, you know, as luck would have it, I actually was just two blocks away from the largest order of Zen Buddhism outside of Japan and the entire world. Wow. Two blocks from my college dorm room. So I, you know, stumble into the Zen center and pretty soon I'm meditating and it really changed my life. I've been doing it ever since for about the last 20 years. Yeah. And I mean, obviously this isn't a podcast about meditation. Right. This is a podcast about user experience research, but you also have 
a background in developmental psychology and there's so much from your practice and from your study that I think could be really beneficial to, you know, the kind of skills and the conversations and things that researchers are doing in the space. So maybe you could talk a little bit to your background with developmental psychology as well. Yeah, I'll say a word about that. I had been practicing mindfulness for maybe 15 years when I was introduced to uh, some psychologists and researchers at Pacific Integral. So this is an institute based in Seattle that's done some really pioneering research in adult development. And they took me in and trained me as a developmental researcher, even though my background was in Eastern contemplative practice. And it really changed the way that I looked at meditation. It changed the way that I work with human beings. It, over time, spending a lot of time with the research and spending a lot of time with the people who participate in our research, I started to appreciate just how differently different adult minds construct meaning and their experience of the world. So we have, we all, as human beings, we have, we have sense gates. This is a Buddhist term, but we see, we hear, and we feel, right? That, that's basically like the combination of see, hear, and feel. It, uh, it, interweaves to create this kind of human matrix, this experience of human life, right? What I learned is that uh, there are very discrete stages that unfold sequentially throughout adulthood and that we actually know a lot about these stages. We know a lot about, we could say, the different minds that construct meaning from the raw experience of the see, hear, feel. So the short of it is for a long time, uh, humanity and for a long time, including myself, I would approach a student in meditation and just kind of teach them the practice as I knew it. Yeah. And what developmental psychology has taught me to do is really adapt my teaching and adapt my style to a given student based on the way that they're processing experience. And what I find about developmental psychology is when you learn just enough about the, the stages, you really start to strengthen your intuition of like how you can optimize your offering. You know, whether it's technology that you're offering and you want the user to be able to engage with it in as satisfying and fulfilling a way as possible, or if you're teaching meditation, it doesn't matter what you're doing, but just that sensitivity to the stages of development, uh, it, it really polishes the way we interact with one another. Yeah. It's really, it's fascinating. I mean, it's this, it's this field of research that has a huge evidence base and the implications for society are really significant. And it's just like not quite at the point where like popular society has absorbed it. But I, I think, you know, over the next few decades, we might be more of a thing that we consider with educational policy, politics, um, climate, like all the like wicked problems in the world. I think development really bears on them because development determines how we'll interpret problems, how we'll construct them in our minds. And it's, you know, you can't have like a fully integrated conversation with different stakeholders unless you're aware of how they're constructing the problem in their own mind. And development's really good at bringing precision to how people make meaning. Well, and I, I mean, I would love to get more resources for people who kind of want to read more into that as well. For sure. Yeah. A great place to start is pacificintegral.com. There's a wealth of uh, information and research on that website. That's a, that's a good place to start. Yeah. And I want to dive more into 
listening because I feel like yeah. that's a really unique skill that you have. But before we do that, I would love to just kind of have you say a word about, you know, I think we're all familiar with the term mindfulness and we're familiar with the term meditation, even if we have different interpretations. Yeah. But you have Mindfulness Plus, even a podcast actually called Mindfulness Plus yeah. with the plus sign instead of the word plus <laughs> right you. now. Yep. Um, mindfulness Plus. <laughs> <laughs> but I would love to have you kind of just quickly say, you know, what's the thing that sets that apart? Why is there that plus? For sure. Uh, so mindfulness, I'll just assume people listening don't know exactly what mindfulness is. A lot of people don't. I'm still learning what mindfulness is 20 years later. I, I think about mindfulness as a practice, an art, and a science of paying attention to how we pay attention. So we're going to get into this when we talk about listening in a moment. But if you think about it, we're always paying attention to something. Right now in this moment, you're having a particular experience that has a particular composition and texture to it. You're attending to your life. And in one moment, you're listening to a podcast, and the next moment, you're cooking some pasta for dinner. The scene is always changing, but we're always attending. Even when we're spaced out, we're attending to some daydream, right? Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is just this exercise of paying attention to how we're paying attention. And when we pay attention to how we pay attention, a choicefulness arises because we realize that we can actually choose to pay attention in different ways to different things. I can pay a lot of attention to a grudge I've been nursing for 20 years, or I can pay attention to the positive attributes that this person has that challenges me, and maybe that gives rise to forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So that's an example. That's mindfulness. That's the 60-second crash course on mindfulness. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. UserZoom is a UX research platform that combines qualitative and quantitative tools with unparalleled customer support. It's basically like getting a full toolbox plus a team of researchers to help you use them. They can help design, conduct, and synthesize your study, or you can use the tools they provide to do it yourself. Learn more at userzoom.com. And I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because, you know, this is something that you mentioned earlier, but I think that, you know, this study of developmental psychology will only become more important in the coming years. There's a tremendous evidence base for it. Um, you know, I've talked to different scientists. Uh, Amishi Jha is a good example. She's a neuroscientist, rock star who rubs elbows with the Dalai Lama, one of those types. And, <laughs> one um, of those types. One of those types. And, you know, I've talked to her about her neuroscience research. And, you know, she'll say that there, it takes a certain number of years for what we know in the laboratory. Like the scientific evidence is really clear. It doesn't mean we know everything there is to know. We just know there's a there there. And that will take a certain number of years, decades even, to trickle down into just popular consciousness. I think for me, I've been following developmental research for about 10 years and it seems not inevitable but likely given the overwhelming evidence that adults develop throughout a lifespan. Adults do not reach physical maturity and then just plateau, right? We, we continue, we have the potential to develop cognitively, emotionally, interpersonally, incre in increasingly complex ways throughout a lifespan. And development is the science that points us to, like, what are the patterns and, you know, what, what can we learn about ourselves and about others by understanding these patterns? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and this is exactly it. 
I've, I think I've already mentioned this, but this is exactly why I wanted to have this conversation because so many UX researchers spend their days interacting with strangers and trying to get really personal really quickly, right? You're sitting having this one-on-one conversation with someone that maybe you met five minutes ago and you might be talking about buying a car as a decision or you might be talking about, you know, a really personal family topic or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was, uh, I guess, surprised when I took this mindfulness meditation class that I felt like there was this real element of listening. And I was surprised by how quickly you were able to create such a kind of environment of safety for a group of strangers where they were opening up and sharing things that were just so personal, some of them. Like I'm thinking of, you know, there was an elderly woman who was talking about with this group of strangers in a way that didn't feel that felt really sincere about sexual awakening and you had other people talking about you know the death of a family member and um i would just love to talk about how you created that environment of safety for people yeah so well i appreciate that's a real compliment to hear that you felt safe in the environment and and could feel the effects of what high quality attention does for you know the experience of being with another person or people. So thanks for that. Yeah. Um, the, an image comes to mind actually that's never occurred to me as you just say that that you know imagine you're crossing a kind of rickety footbridge mm-hmm. and like a hundred feet below is this raging like Amazonian river, right? So it's precarious. Rocks everywhere. Yeah, it's precarious. Um, but you have to cross it let's just say, for the sake of argument. And the way you're gonna do it is to like really set your foot down really gently on a plank of wood and see like, can I trust my weight to this? Mm-hmm. And if, if it feels like you can, then you trust all of your weight to it. You lift your back foot, set it in front of the other, but, but you have to test the ground beneath you to see if you're held, to see if it's safe. Uh, in a sense, listening, what we call it Pacific Integral generative listening. We call it generative listening because the very quality of your presence and your listening to the other, it gives them the experience of being safe, that that the ground beneath them, as it were, will support them. So my basic approach, the the kind I'm giving away my trade secrets here. But like, my, please. My, <laughs> my basic approach to bringing a room full of strangers together and creating a lot of trust and intimacy in a short amount of time is to really just drive home the teaching that the quality of your presence is, it's not a passive act to listen to another person. It's a creative act that draws a person out of themselves. It allows people to express things they didn't know they could express. They didn't know they had to express. If you're fully present, it's the opposite of casting pearls before swine. On the other end of the spectrum, there's here's my pearl and I'm gonna show it to you because I can tell how reverent you are towards it. And it actually feels really relieving to get to show this to somebody because you know, in my heart of hearts, I long to share this part of me with somebody. So that happens, like what I've found is that adults are so game for that. If you give them an excuse to relate and get personal, we all really want it. We love intimacy, we love to be vulnerable and we're terrified of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was it was almost shocking. Honestly, yeah. I can't remember the last time that I, I had an experience like that, <laughs> where it was like you walked into this room and all of a sudden you were in this just completely different, um, just like the emotional vibe or mm-hmm. or something was so different. And that and, you know, I'm, I'm so happy to have you share your trade secret. And I <laughs> would love to have you say more about how do you actually do that? 
right? Like, how do you actually become a generative listener? I love that term. Yeah, yeah, it's profound. Um, well, another teaching, and this gets back, we spoke a moment ago about what mindfulness is. I talked about paying attention to how you're paying attention. Uh, metaphorically, we could say that in a given moment, like right now as you're listening to me and right now as you know, our listeners are listening in on this conversation, we bring a particular listening filter to the conversation, meaning that in a given moment, we might be listening with a kind of filter like, is this useful information to me? Is it not useful? Is it interesting? Is it not interesting? Is it true? Is it false? And so on and so on. We have countless filters, right? But uh, there's a category, there's a class of filters. Again, this is metaphorical, but there's a class of filters we could say that's inherently defensive. It's, it's, it's distrustful. And I yeah. don't say that in a negative way because we need, we need these filters to survive. Sometimes when someone approaches you and it's not, they don't have totally trustworthy intentions, they don't have, they don't have uh, the best intentions in mind for you, then it's helpful to say like, you know, what's the scam? What's this all about? But what happens is we encounter so many of those situations in a given day that we become hardened and those filters become our default. We forget that we're actually at a deep level, we're making a choice to listen that way. Mm -hmm. So generative listening comes in when we actually realize that, oh, I'm actually paying t attention in a way that I'm actually trying to find what's wrong with this person. I'm listening to Thomas talk right now and I'm wondering if he's totally full of it or if he might know what he's <laughs> talking about. And then, you know, so we, we point that out. Never lose that skepticism. Like, totally, still to the <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah, totally. Never lose that. I, I warn my students, don't ever, you know, totally discount the possibility that I'm totally full of it. But in terms of generative listening, we'll, we'll give a different instruction. Like suppose that you sense a genius in this person, something great that wants to be expressed. And it just takes a proper audience all this person needs is somebody to be present with them in order to, you know, put words to this beautiful possibility. Or, you know, how would you attend to the Dalai Lama? If, if it were you and the Dalai Lama or some revered figure, whoever it is in your life, you're just one-on-one -on -one with them. Let's say it's an ancestor and they've, they've come back from the dead to have a single <laughs> conversation with you. And like, think of how attuned you would be to their expression. And so what, what kind of listening can you bring to that moment? And can you bring more of that quality of listening into just the water cooler? I think that resonates with me so much because I definitely have noticed that there are certain people, I mean, we're, we're different people with with different people, mm -hmm. right? And it's a lot of it is because of the way that they listen to us. You know, yeah. some people we know we have more of an adversarial relationship. Mm -hmm. So we're going to kind of tread lightly uh -huh. and not say things that are as vulnerable yeah. or, you know, things that are closer to our hearts. Right. And I thought, you know, something that really stuck out to me in class and I think was the moment when I was like, oh, I've got to have Thomas on the show was um, we were sitting and doing a group activity, which was something that I didn't really expect in a you know mindfulness meditation class was how often you had us actually do group activities. I kind of had imagined like sitting cross-legged, like trying to not get distracted or whatever. <laughs> uh, but this one day we were sitting doing a group activity and you know we were supposed to share, I think what we had 
uh, been thinking of during our personal meditation, but you gave this very specific uh, instruction to the other people in the conversation to listen as if it was, you know, the most precious thing that this person had to share. Right. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what a different way to approach a conversation. Right. You know, what what a different assumption to be making because yep. I... I definitely agree with our default becomes the doubtful or the defensive or the skeptical. Yeah. Uh, and it's just such a different kind of place to start and you get such a different response. Yeah, exactly. Consciousness is incredibly fluid and mysteriously we have we seem to have a great deal of control over how we modulate consciousness, attention, moment to moment. It's an incredibly creative act just to be a human being, just to be sentient. And we start with that premise. And in a Mindfulness Plus class, we start with that premise that every moment is a creative act that we're actively generating. Yeah. And, you know, I I would love to just pick your brain more. And this is probably a personality thing, but how? You know, like, what are some of the specific things that people can do to become more that way? Like, I think even that activity of just thinking, you know, imagine if this was the most precious thing. But what are some of the other activities or resources yeah. that? Yeah, well, something that comes to mind, this is maybe more specific than you're going for. There's a, uh, there's a scripture in the Upanishads that says, where there is other, there is fear. I'm like, what is the Upanishad? Oh, this is uh, this is from the Hindu canon that oh, predates okay. Buddhism. Uh, so, very, some of the oldest scripture we have on the planet. Yeah. And and there's this phrase that kind of echoes across time, where there is where there is other, there is fear. And I, I bring that up because you know, uh, as we kind of talk about listening, every time we encounter the other, whoever it is, there's this sense of like, not me, and there's this sense of. I don't know what this person's about. There's a certain level of transparency I can read, you know, based on your, your nodding right now and you're being polite and I can <laughs> tell you're attentive, right? I, I, I have clues as to who you are, but there's a depth and an opacity to who you are. Like, I just, I have to guess. And to the extent that I have to guess, there's a little bit of anxiety. There's a little bit of fear. So I, I work a lot with just the fact that somewhere in our experience, it's subtle for some of us and it's not as subtle for others. There's, there's an element of fear in every single encounter. Hmm. And we can actually make use of that as an object of meditation. I can notice like, what's the quality of my fear, my anxiety, my sense of, it, you know, social anxiety mm -hmm. is a very common form of this fear that I'm speaking Definitely. about. How do I work with social anxiety in a skillful way that creates a creative encounter that, that can give rise to more creativity. And so I, I have students attend to that social anxiety, attend to that fear, and allow it to be kind of this um, invitation into trust. Meaning, so, so this is a paradox that safety, fear and trust end up being, you know, uh, deeply related to one another. Yeah. So you notice you're afraid, you notice you have social anxiety, but I also notice that I can take a risk here. I'm going to say something, I'm going to reveal something about myself to test this boundary with the other. Mm -hmm. And what you notice as you get better at this, you notice there's just a really natural melting. As I come up to the point of contact with the other, I'm honest about like the quality of fear, anxiety in the moment, and I take a step towards like a gesture of intimacy, people just melt. 
I love that. Yeah, I love that phrase. If people just melt. No, and I think I think you're so right that when you recognize the fear, as opposed to just kind of, you know, a lot of times when we feel social anxiety, we just yeah. kind of clam we up. Just brace. And we're like, oh, I just feel so uncomfortable, as yeah. opposed to thinking, oh, I feel a little bit of social anxiety because I'm afraid that this person is going to react negatively right. to me. That's right. And I'm going to take a, you know, I'm going to be brave exactly. in this moment, as opposed to just kind of being paralyzed in that fear. Yeah, exactly. And again, this is all a mindfulness practice. We notice we have social anxiety. The, the default response to that is to just brace like <laughs> oh crap how do I get out of this conversation let me make some small talk and you know we yeah. all have our patterns of contraction around this anxiety but if we can make it an object of awareness if I can notice that there's anxiety there then all of a sudden I can be creative with it yeah. I'm notice I'm paying attention in a new way and I can say oh maybe this anxiety is an invitation to ground just feel the ground beneath me take a breath take a risk yeah and so really everything i do it's just a it starts on that basis and um they're dance steps that we are all actually remarkably intuitive at and they're really techniques and approaches that help us create greater intimacy and fulfillment in all of our relations in all of our relationships whether that's with like a long-term life partner or it's with my client that i've just sat down with and i hardly know him and it's not going that well right now you know like it's the whole gamut of human experience and relationship yeah so i mean for example if we were sitting here and we had never which, met before. Which we are. Yeah, which we are sitting here. <laughs> and we had never met before. Yeah. Um, you know, and we were about to have a conversation about something, you know, intimate or important to that person. Uh -huh. What would be maybe something that you would say to attend to that? Uh, you know, social anxiety and yeah. help us move past it? Yeah, it's a great question. One thing I often say to students, so in a lot of my exercises, I'll say, okay, there's a speaker and there's the, the rest are listeners and give them two minutes uninterrupted. And without fail, five to 10% of the class, like at the end of the first round, their hands shoot up. They're just like, I wanted to say something so bad and it just killed me. Why wouldn't you let us say something? It felt so rude. They were sharing something <laughs> personal and I just wanted to tell them, you know, how much I cared about what they're saying. And what I often tell students is that you can learn to trust just how potent your presence is. Hmm. We, we think that we have to say something like, oh, I totally get what you're saying. It reminds me of this other thing. You know, we have these ways of uh, signaling to people that we're, we're with them. But really, as you learn to like deepen your presence and the quality of your awareness, you realize that so much of what we habitually say in an encounter is just habituated. It's not necessary. It's not serving intimacy. We do it just because it's habit and the power of presence to just fully receive somebody, to just take them in. You realize that these interactions, they have an intelligence all their own and they, they just know where to go and they know how to deepen. And a lot of our practice is just learning how to stay out of our own way. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. How many times do you think you touch your phone a day? Try 2,617. Seems like a lot, but dscout research shows that's just the median. Since everyone is already on their phone, dscout took qualitative research right to the people. Their pool of over 100,000 participants answer client questions on the largest digital diary platform around. You don't need to spend weeks setting up and recruiting for your research when you can use dscout to capture experience remotely. Learn how quickly you can launch your next study at dscout.com. 
it's just funny because I'm thinking of the first time that I came to class and you're right like there there was it wasn't necessarily something that you said although you know you did say a lot of things I think to kind of put the class at ease but there was a calmness to it and you're right I think the word is presence and it's interesting to think about that especially you know at work kind of bringing that because even just allowing yourself to be fully present in that way feels kind of vulnerable or intimate so like I'm imagining being in a conference room and kind of just like being present with this stranger and it makes me a little bit nervous it's vulnerable we have to like really let our guard down and kind of reveal our soft underbelly (laughs) for this to happen but I mean this is where the magic happens another image that comes to mind just to help listeners like really start to feel this in their bodies I mean what I'm describing here it's not a concept it's an embodied experience of being a a human being and being in an intimate encounter. Um, I think about an opera singer. Think about an opera singer who just has trained their voice for decades and they can just belt it out and fill an entire auditorium. So imagine that opera singer like belting out their, their most beautiful note in a telephone booth. (laughs) <laughs> right? It's like kind of like, well, I don't want to belt it out in a telephone booth. This yeah. isn't the time or the place. But then, you know, like Symphony Opera Hall, right? Where, you know, their voice just spreads to infinity. It's the most natural thing in the world to just fill the, in- the immensity of space with their voice. Our awareness can be that space for another. Mm-hmm. Our, our awareness actually, again, metaphorically, it has a shape to it. And sometimes when we meet somebody, the shape of our awareness is like a telephone booth. We, we have like 10 seconds for them to say what they need to say, and then we're not interested and we're moving on. And then there's the quality of, you know, listening where it's, you know, it, it's that Expansive. opera hall quality. And it's like, this person just knows I can sing in this space. That's such a beautiful analogy. <laughs> like, that might be the most beautiful thing that's ever been said on my podcast. Sing to me, Aria. <laughs> um, so, as we've been talking about this, I just, I had the thought, you know, I think there are so many things that we consciously or unconsciously do to be the telephone booth. And I, I'm wondering if you, you know, have any examples or maybe things that you can call up that we do that that turn us into the telephone booth as opposed to the symphony hall, just for people to kind of be aware of, because I think we often fall into these little habits like we've been talking about. Yeah, for sure. Um, So I'm thinking about a lot of listeners will know Brene Brown. Of course. Cool. Um, so she she came and spoke to us at a meeting um, a few months back. Um, it's just a group of us back in uh, Massachusetts. And she said something really beautiful that, that has stuck with me because she has a way of just saying something plain and insightful. With we her lo- Texas accent. We, we love you, Brene. Yeah, we love you yeah. so much. <laughs> if you're out there listening, Brene, we love you. Yeah. So she's, she said that in her research, the most compassionate people she's ever met and studied are the most boundaried Huh. That's what the room did. We're like, huh, what does that mean? My eyebrows are definitely furrowed right right. now. Yeah. So back to your question, like, what is it that like creates a small telephone booth listening experience in us? Like, why do we collapse on ourselves and not listen as generously, not be as present as we're capable of? Well, like one really simple practice, a la Brene Brown, is to notice how much you actually have to give. 
Like to be really honest about this is how much space I have right now. These are my boundaries and I can love you fully through these boundaries. And if I pretend like I have more to give than mm-hmm. I do, I will exhaust myself and I will resent you for it and I'll start to get surly. Yeah. So to just be really honest, like, you know, when you're with a client, uh, when you've worked a long day and you're like suddenly drawn into this new conversation that doesn't seem to be letting up to just do a quick kind of mindfulness scan, like how much energy and attention do I truly have to bring to this moment? And if, if something like I don't have that much is coming up, then you find a very polite way to say, you know what, I want to be really present to what you're saying and I, I'm just done for the day. Can we find a time where we have enough space? I say this to people all the time, like I want to hear what you're saying and I feel like we need a little more time and space to do it properly. Can we do that? So simultaneously, I'm taking care of my boundaries and I'm letting them know that like what they're saying is really important. What we often do, I do this a lot. I, I know this teaching just by having not done it a million times, but I, I tell myself, oh, I can power through this. Oh, I can show up for my friend. Like I just had a long day at work and like they had an even worse day and now they want to talk to me about their bad day. I can show up for them, but I really can't. So I I pretend that I have more space, more energy, more stamina than I do. And that's when my listening actually gets really small and reactive. So that's one kind of hygiene practice we can do to take care of our listening. And it's okay if we're a telephone booth. The teaching is not that you, for the rest of your life, Ariel, now that you've taken my class, you need to attend to every person's expression as if they were the Dalai Lama. Yeah. (laughs) Because people take that away. Yeah, it's exhausting to listen that way. Yeah, you can't. But the the point is we have a choice. Mm -hmm. We can actually modulate through we can we can transition through countless filters and we get to choose creatively as artists which filter is the most appropriate in a given moment for a given interaction yeah it's incredible i yeah i mean first of all it resonates with me because it's Brene brown and we all love her <laughs> but yeah it, it's interesting because I, you're right it's it's kind of counterintuitive when I heard yeah. boundaries, it seems like the exact opposite of intimacy. Yeah, but exactly. But it's yeah, it's interesting to call out that you kind of can't have one without right. the other, at least. Yeah, just like not genuinely. Exactly, just like fear leads to deeper trust, mm-hmm. boundaries leads to deeper compassion. There are these paradoxes that we find in this practice. Mindfulness is a, it's a practice of paradoxes. Mm-hmm. We realize they're all over the place. Yeah. yeah. So, are there any other things that I mean? That's such a good one. But are there any? <laughs> right. other? You got anything? I don't <laughs> like, know, do you have anything better? else? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just like, wow, that was so good. Is there more? <laughs> uh, we just like speakerphone called Renee Brown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> oh, that's um, good. Yeah, I'm wondering if there are any other little things that. Countless. I mean, we're we're riffing here, and I'm just kind of kind of free associating with the basics. Some, I, I'm interested you know, on this show and communicating some very basic practices. You do not have to shave your head and, you know, retreat to the misty mountaintops of China or Japan to learn mindfulness so that you can finally be a generative listener. Mm -hmm. I want to share some practices. Like we actually all know how to just kind of take inventory in a given moment and notice how present am I? And if I'm not that present, let me show the other person I care by saying, I, I can't be totally present with you. Let's, let's do it another time. Yeah. It's a really basic practice. And we all are really intuitive about the moment I use the metaphor listening filters, people are like, oh, 
that's my favorite listening filter to find the flaw in what someone's saying. Totally. Right. Um, and then the moment I suggest that there's a generative possibility where you can just actually treat someone's expression as something precious, like yeah. with some reverence. Everyone knows exactly how to go to that place. Yeah. So. Yeah. It reminds me of. I mean, it, it reminds me of Edward de Bono's thinking hats. Mm. And I like how, you know, he kind of does this thing where he makes it physical, where he's mm. like, when you're wearing a yellow hat, you're thinking in this way. You're thinking yeah. like really positively yeah. and, you know, just kind of riffing on everything and saying yes to everything. And, <laughs> you know, you're wearing a black hat and you're kind of approaching everything in a really negative way. So I love that, you know, we're seeing these same patterns um, of thought and approaching conversation, you know, from you and from these different places. And I think it's because you're right. Like they, they really resonate with people and they hear filters and they're like, oh, I'm totally doing that myself as well. Right. That's something I really stress in a mindfulness practice. Uh, it's easy to believe that when you hear the word mindfulness, you're like, oh, I don't know what that is, or I've heard what it is, but I don't do it. Mindfulness in its essence is who we already are. Right? We're, we're this aware presence and it's a choiceful awareness. We can mm -hmm. be creative with our awareness. That's all mindfulness is. And we're all at our very hearts mindful. Yeah. And we just need some reminding. Yeah. So for people who are listening to this and they're like, oh my gosh, this is, yeah. this is totally, I keep saying resonating, but <laughs> give me a different word. Anyway, for people who are listening and, you know, feeling like this really is resonating with them, what would be, you know, kind of a next step or an article or a book or something yeah. that, you know, you feel like is really helpful in kind of progressing that path or developing those generative listening skills? Yeah, there's, there's a wealth of resources mm -hmm. out there. Um, one thing I, I tell people is to be discerning. You know, there are a lot of teachings out there, a lot of different schools and styles of practicing mindfulness. Um, I, I encourage people to really be discerning. And if they don't resonate with a particular teaching, that's okay. I mean, I've, I, you know, after 20 years, there have been teachers that I study with for an hour. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I go to a single class, a single talk, and I take it in and I move on. And then there are teachers that I've been studying with for almost 20 years, and it's just a bottomless well, and I sense there's something in it for me. So for people who feel like, yes, what, what this guy's saying right now, it's, it's landing in me. I know it means something, and I want to pay more attention to it. I would say to just follow your nose, you know, and like reserve this right of refusal. Like if one teaching isn't resonating, feel free to move to the next. And I, I promise over time you'll, you'll come across something that's like, whoa. Like I need to spend a little bit of time here. And that's a really satisfying thing to come into that relationship with a teacher or with a teaching. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Thomas. I mean, yeah. I love every time, every time I sit down with you, I just feel like, wow, I really did learn something that's, <laughs> that's meaningful and that's beneficial. And I mean, even also when I'm listening to your podcast every time, it's like a moment to just kind of breathe out and be calm and yeah, yeah pay attention to how we pay attention. I Thank think. you, Arl. Yeah, I appreciate that. And yeah, Mindfulness Plus, it's a podcast. Um, like I said, there's a lot of good mindfulness teaching out there. Mindfulness Plus incorporates more of the developmental component. So that's, you know, that's something that I'm really passionate about and I love to share on the podcast. So you can check that out. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Arl. It's great to be with you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. As the Dalai Lama said, when you talk, you are only repeating what you already know. But if you listen, you may learn something new. I hope that rings true today. 
If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group. You can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mix-methods.org. And check out the episode page for links to Thomas's podcast and more. If you have a second, write a review of Mixed Methods wherever you listen. It helps a ton. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, and Laura Levitt, the design mastermind behind this project. See you next time. Thank you.